Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Dana Osband, here with my friend, Lachlev Rusa Aaron Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachi Kedushin, DAP Chav Tech, page 29. Well, Anne, I think you'll agree with you. We have a doozy of a Mishnah today. It's like one of those Mishnahs that, I don't know, anyone who's interested in women, Talmud Torah, issues around that, this is like one of those, the, one of these Gemaras, right? It's, is that a good way to introduce the DAP? I think it's fair. Also, it's we're about to also embark on the Kibbutz the aim section of Kiddushin, meaning there's a whole bunch of juicy, hot topic, um, famous. You know, I, I'm always wary of saying famous because if you never heard of it, then it's not famous. Like, who cares if it's famous? But there is meat to the Gdapim that are about to come and not just more different Kiddushin cases. Yeah, so let's get to it. So we have a Mishnah here that is basically going to go through categories of commandments that women are obligated and those that they are not obligated in. Now, the question is, what, what, why is it here, right? So far, we've sort of been doing a bunch of Mishnayot that discuss the issue of, of Kenyan, okay? And so this Mishnah comes and it sort of seems to have uh, nothing to, you know, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything, some of the commentators explain uh, that maybe it has to do with sort of that, you know, uh, it, it gets placed here because it, it's a little bit related to marriage. Um, and, you know, some people say, because we'll see, part of what it talks about is things that a father is obligated to do for a son. And one of them is to help him get married, right, to arrange his marriage. So that's why it's placed in Kedushin, this uh, particular Mishnah. But it will seem like it's really very different than the Mishnayos that we've, that we've done before in this Masechad. So when we talk about the obligations of the son upon the father, and this is like a phrase, we're going to see the Gemara right away is going to be like, what does that phrase mean? So I, I'm translating it into English, but it should strike you as sort of like an, um, uh, an ambiguous phrase. So men are obligated to do those things, and women are exempt from doing those things. So in other words, what the Mishnah is basically talking about is, is that there are certain obligations that involve a son. And it's th- those are things that the father has to do, but the mother does not have to do them. And when we talk about obligations to the father on the son, in those cases, both men and women... Um, uh, 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 you know, both men and women are obligated. So here what the mission is referring to is means both that a parent has to, you know, uh, has to, that a child basically has to do for the parent. And this is where we're going to get into all these things about kibbutz Aim. So the first category seems to be things that a parent does for a child. The second category, and that only, only men need to do. The second category seems to be things that a child needs to do for a parent. And that men and women are equally obligated in. While they're on that topic, then they're going to go through other things. When are men obligated or when are women obligated? When we talk about positive commandments that are time bound. So these would be things like lulav, sukkah, tefillin, sitzis, um, many, many things that we have. Chauffeur, okay, which is a whole interesting thing because women do do chauffeur, but we'll talk about this more when we get to the top of the Mitzvah Men are obligated and women are petor. But positive commandments that are not time bound, both men and women are equally obligated. 
negative commandments, whether they are bound by time or not bound by time, both men and women are uh, bound by them. So there's no any low tasses that a woman could do that a man could do, except for the following. Except for the commandments about rounding the corners of one's head, Right, which uh, which appears in um, uh, which appears in Vayikra chapter nineteen, verse twenty seven, which is talking about cutting the hair on the tep- the temples, right? That will be called peyot today. Um, the second one is not destroying one's beard. Uh, so this also appears in Vayikra as well. Um, and then the last one is not to become tame for the dead. So this is a mitzvah specifically for male kohanim. This appears in Vayikra chapter twenty one. Verse one, and this is specifically for male Kohanim. Now, as I said, the Gemara is going to start with trying to understand my ben al ab. What is it meant by this idea of obligations of the son on the father? Right. One could say that maybe it means all the obligations that are upon a son to perform for his father. Nashim petuot. How can we say that women are patur for that? Pahatanir wasn't it taught in a brisa ish, right? When the pasuk says the word ish, where it's and here they're talking about the pasuk that says um, that uh, you should honor uh, your mother and your father from Vayikra chapter nineteen verse three. Ainly ella ish, right? We only know that a man has to uh, you know honor his parents. Isha minayin. How do I know that a woman has to? Right, because the Pasuk says, every man you should revere your mother and your father, and it says it in plural, okay? Um, so here it's referring to both men and women. In other words, that both men and women are obligated in that commandment. So it can't be that we're talking about something that a son is obligated to his father because we already found mitzvot that both sons and daughters are obligated to do. So that can't be what this first clause of the mission is talking about. I'm a Rabbi Yehuda. So Rabbi Yehuda says, This is what the mission is saying. We're talking about obligations involving a son that the father has to do for the son. Men are obligated. The father's obligated to do that for the son. But women are not obligated. And then, based on this, the Gemara is going to bring a, a brisa here, Tanina Leha de Tanu Ravanan. According to Rabbi Yehuda's explanation, right, we have, we learned in our Mishnah that which we also learned by the rabbis in a brisa, right, a father is obligated with respect to his son, okay? So there are basically five things that a father is obligated to teach his son. He has to, or he has to do for his son, excuse me. He has to circumcise him. He has to redeem him if he's the firstborn. He has to teach him Torah. He has to make sure that he gets married. He has to find a way for him. And again, this is one of the reasons why we say maybe this Mishnah appears here. And he has to teach him a trade. And some say that even he has to teach him to swim in water. So I actually will say that very often in my office when I would talk to patients who were not Jewish, and I would talk about the importance of swim safety and actually teaching your kids to swim, I would often quote this and I would say it's actually Jewish law that you have to teach your child how to swim. 
And people were always like very, very taken by that. And the reason obviously is, is because that saves your life. If you know how to swim, if you don't know how to swim, you could be in big trouble. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Rabbi Yehuda says, Kol Right? Anyone who does not teach his son a crap, it's like he taught him banditry. Now the Gemara asks, Listut, Salkantatech, wait, do you really think it's like he taught him, you know, uh, banditry? So then the Gemara says, No, it's saying it's like he taught him. In other words, if you don't teach your son a trade, they may be forced to steal, actually, because they're not going to have a proper way to actually, uh, you know, make their... Um, to actually make a living. Okay, so very, very famous Mishnah. We're going to spend a lot of time unpacking this Mishnah in the next few Tappan. Um, and a famous Gemara as well that I think really shows sort of the ambiguity, right? It makes it clear that this is a very difficult Mishnah to understand. What does it mean? Have, you know, have, you know, have, like, what do these types of phrases mean? But it does a good job of explaining that initially what we're talking about are things the father is obligated to do for the son. And then essentially what the Gemara is going to do from there is go through different sukim to say, okay, how do we know a father's obligated to make sure his son is circumcised? How do we know the father is, is obligated to make sure that his son is re- is is redeemed, right? That's pigeon haben, that the firstborn son uh, from a woman would be redeemed, uh, that it would be, you know, any son who's born, if he had five sons born to five different women, that they would all need to be redeemed. And that's essentially what, you know, what the Gemara is going to go through now. So I do just want to make one comment, which is that as much as we talk about the mitzvah being, you know, that the father must do for the son, we should be clear that, you know, there there are certainly cases of families that don't have fathers. Father might have died before the child was born, so on, right? And in these cases, so halachically speaking, from a very... Uh, what, nitty-gritty level of halacha, we're going to say, the mother does not have the obligation to circumcise the son. The mother does not have the obligation to redeem the son. Like, there's, the obligation doesn't fall on the mother, but in the on the flip side of that, the child still has to be, have a circumcision, right? So, the 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 solution is, right, that the baiting has to make sure that it happens. But tachlis, in a practical way, what happens is that the mother makes sure that this happens. It, it There ends up being a good amount of you know, I, I like to call it the thumbs of the Gemara, but it's also, you know, a certain amount of of maneuvering to keep it, to stick it to this rule of this is the father's obligation and not the mother's, um, which is interesting, I suppose, in light of the part that I'm about to read in the Gemara, which focuses very much on Lilam Do Torah, that it's the obligation of the father to teach his son Torah. And... All right, let's just read it right inside. We don't have to belabor this point. Minalan, how do we know this? Because there's a verse in Devarim, chapter 11, that says, that, that you will teach them, you will teach them, meaning you will teach the words of Torah to et to, the, to your sons. And so this is a case where you'd say that the father didn't teach him well, he still has an obligation then to go teach himself, meaning the child would then have the obligation, I suppose, at the age of 13 to, to go teach himself. But the way the word is written is ulamadetem, right? Ulamadetem, and you shall study. So you can play with the words vilimadetem versus ulamadetem, meaning the the plain sense is vilimadetem. It's on the father to teach the kid. Um, but also you could re, re, re-vocalize it 
to put that obligation on the child in the event that the father does not actually fulfill his obligation for whatever reason. Now, how do we know that that she, that a woman, is not obligated to teach her son Torah? It says, the verse here, this same verse, and you will teach, that should be read as, again, it can be read as, you will study. And if we're going to say that you have a mitzvah, you have a mitzvah to study, then that's who's got the mitzvah to teach, right? If you don't have a mitzvah to do to do the thing itself, to do the actual study, then you don't have the mitzvah to, to do the teaching either. Anybody who's not obligated to study cannot be obligated to teach. And how do we know that the wife, I'm sorry, not wife, how do we know that the woman herself is not obligated to teach herself? Meaning, okay, so the father has an obligation to teach his son, but maybe the woman has an obligation to do her own learning. And so again, the Gemara says, well, the same way that says, you will teach, you could read it as you will study. And what that means is that anybody who is commanded to teach is also commanded to teach himself. And whoever is not commanded to teach which we've already established that the woman is not commanded to teach, is also not commanded to teach herself. It gets a little circular in the way the Gemara presents it, but it's also like you could line it up and it does actually, the logic of it does work out. Meaning, I'm not saying you should like it, but that, is, that the logic of it does actually follow through. But how do we know that others are not commanded to teach the woman Torah, the Amar Kra, because we have this verse, and it goes back to the verse, you know, each time, Vlimaritem Otam at Benechem, at Benechem below Benotechem. It says, Your sons and not your daughters. Now, we know that Hebrew works in a way that, um, you know, is a gendered language so that children would also be Benechem, meaning children, meaning boys and girls, would be included in the word Benechem. But if you want to be precise, then you can explicate the word Benechem to mean only sons, and not benotechem, also daughters. So the Gemara works very hard here, right, to show that the man, the father has an obligation to teach his son. He doesn't have an obligation to teach his daughter. The mother does not have an obligation to teach the son, nor to learn herself, nor obviously to teach the daughters. Tanara Banan. So the Gemara then kind of like moves right on from there. And we've talked in the past, of course, right, about how the halacha itself develops over years past this point of there's no obligation to teach. I want to just emphasize, and it's a key, you know, key element of this, this whole process. At no point in anything we've just seen does it say that it is prohibited to teach the woman, to teach the daughter etc. Right? Like, the fact that there's no obligation to teach her is a really different statement in halachic terms than saying that she is prohibited from learning or that somebody is prohibited from teaching her. Fine, the Gemara goes on. So, they they learn as follows. If you want to teach, if you want to, pardon me, if you want to study Torah, and the son, he wants to study and his son also wants to study, who called him Luvno? Meaning, if you don't have um, the opportunity, let's say, for everybody to learn together, wouldn't that be nice? Then the father takes precedence in his learning to the son's learning. I think this is very counterintuitive given the priority I think many people give to school nowadays over adult education or continuing education. 
רב יהודה אומר, אם בנו זריז וממולח, ותלמודו מתקיים בידו בנו קודמו. But if the son is really sharp, really diligent, he's going to become a real learner, right? Then the son will take precedence over the father. כי הד רב יעקב ברית רב אחא בר יעקב. This is like the story that took place with רב אחא, with רב יעקב, the son of רב אחא בר יעקב, right? And what happens? שדרי אבו לקמי דבאי, the father sent him to learn with אבאי. כי אתה חזי דלא הווה מיחדדין שמיתה, שמתי. Right, so the son came home and the father realized that his study, like he wasn't so sharp. He wasn't so, literally, מחדדין, sharp. He wasn't so sharp, meaning he wasn't that smart. אמר לי, אנא עדיף אמינך, טוב את דאזל אנא. So then he says, אחבר יעקב says to his son, I am preferable over you. It's better that I go and learn. So you sit here, you take care of the house, whatever, you do whatever, and I'm going to go learn, presumably with Abaye. Except for here's what happens. Shema Abaye, Abaye hears that Rav Achibar Yaakov is coming. Hava hahu mazik Abaye. At that same time, <laughs> this is like, Yardena, you're going to love this story. I know you love this story. At that same time, coincidentally, there was a demon in the Beit Midrash of Abaye. The Heikh Avu Ayale betrayed Afilu Bimama Havu Mitazke. So there was a demon in the Beit Midrash in the study hall, and it was so powerful that even when people would enter in pairs, which is a, you know, an antidote to demons, apparently, then they would, be, they would still end up getting harmed. And even they could go in during the day when demons are not supposed to be afoot, right? They're supposed to only come out at night. This demon was very, very strong, very, very powerful. It was able to make it into the Beit Midrash, which should not have any demons because it's a Beit Midrash learning Torah. The pairs were not, you know, being one of a pair, it was not protection. The daytime was not protection. Amr lehu, lo leitiv le'inish ushpiza, afshar dimitrachesh nisa. So what happens? Abai says to the people, like, you know, the, the people who lived in this town, don't let him stay with you. Ushpiza, right? Uh, lodging, you know, being hospitable. Don't let Rav Achibar Yaakov stay with you. So he has to stand, you know, stay in the Beit Midrash. And then, because he himself, Rav Achibar Yaakov, is so righteous, maybe there will be, I mean, the, the, the logic here is just fascinating, right? Not logic, the ploy. Maybe there will be a miracle because of Rav Achibar Yaakov, and the demon will disappear. The demon will be, will be killed. Al-Bata Bahahu Be-Rabbanan Idami Le-Ketanina Deshiva Rishvate Kol Kriya Dekara Natar Chad Reshe. So what happens? Ravach can't, doesn't have any hospitality, home hospitality. He spends a night of Beit Midrash. And, of course, the demon shows up. It looks to him like he's looking at a serpent that has seven heads. And he begins to pray. And as he prays, each time he prays, or each time he bows, rather, kol kriya dekara, each time he bows, then a, a head, chad reisha, each one of the heads would fall off. Amar lehu lamachar, ilo itrachesh nisa sakintin. He says, Ravacha Bar Yaakov says to the people, if there hadn't been a miracle, you would have been putting me in danger. Meaning, what kind of hospitality is this? And I think that he's exactly right, right? That's not very nice. But it also worked out pretty well. So it's kind of a, 
I don't know what to make of the story. Do you have anything to say about this? It's a very strange story. I actually am not sure what to make of the story at all. Um, look, I, I think whenever you see a demon there, you know, part of what the Gemara is trying to communicate to us is there's some force. There's something there that isn't good, right? And the demon is sort of like a physical manifestation of that. Okay. Okay, and Rav Bar Yaakov somehow, you know, was able to to rise above it or whatever it was. But the the switch here, right? Meaning, keep in mind, it's supposed to be his son who is there to begin with. The fact that Rav Bar Yaakov is there to ostensibly to learn Torah with Abaye, like it's a total sidestep from the real story. You know, the the original plot line has been taken over by the demon. I I find it to be fascinating. And you know, thank God, Rav Yaakov had the the strength as a but as someone who was praying. But do you think the story being critical that like he like who he was learning Torah with of Abaye? In other words, like what learning Torah with Abaye as opposed to the son? Like that's a little bit of my read of the story. Mean that he went instead of the son going? Yes, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think that the I think it's presented that the. Well, Abaye didn't send the son home, right? It's not like he refused to teach him, and therefore he's getting punished by a demon. I don't think we have any real sense of why this demon shows up in this Beit Midrash. I hear that. I just, I don't know. I think it's it's connected to the father and the son dynamic here. Okay, that's interesting. Listen, there's... As we like to say, there's plenty to unpack here. I do just want to comment that the Gemara then brings it all back, you know, both to the study, the question of women in Talmud Torah and marriage. Right, that was the end of that Mishnah. We've got another break to hear that lines up with this to say, you know, what's the order? First, he should learn Torah, and then he should get married. But if that's impossible, then he should first get married and then he should learn Torah. Meaning the primacy of, and we're not going to read more inside, but the primacy of Talmud Torah here is very, very clear. Um, And the fact that the women are not part of that enterprise should not surprise anybody. It was a very different era. The fact that nowadays women are part of the enterprise is obvious because, hello, you know, look at the thousands of women who are learning Dafyomi in this day and age. So I feel like you know, this is the primacy of Torah is still something that we care about. Yeah, and the fact notice, that our, it doesn't make a comment about women not being allowed to do it. I just want to point that out. Like, right, right. It's very important. That, that go out of their way to say, you know, we talk, you know, that women learning is not good. That's not what this Gemara does here. It's just not an obligation. Exactly. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff in our Talking Time with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.